Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialist.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from July 23rd to August 5th. Whose Law and Whose Order? After weeks, and in some places months of protests following the murder of George Floyd, demonstrations in most places have subsided. Many of those who demonstrated their outrage against the racist brutality of the police may no longer be in the streets, but they feel like they had accomplished something. And they have. The demonstrations forced a discussion, and in some places actions, addressing police terror and brutality against black people. The decisions, symbolic or not, to reduce funding for the police, to establish some limits to the terror they represent in many communities, and to substitute social workers for cops in various situations, are being discussed or implemented in a number of cities and towns. Monuments that commemorated slavery and colonialism were toppled, which led to local and state governments carrying out or promising to carry out an end to the honoring of those who represented the open racist foundations of the U.S. Trump viewed these actions as an attack on the America that he said he wanted to make great again, the America he campaigned on. He launched an attack on the movement, sending federal forces into the streets of Portland in mid-July to put down the demonstrations that had been continuing for months. In addition, he threatened to send troops into Albuquerque, Chicago, Oakland, Philadelphia, and other cities to protect federal buildings or to supposedly combat street crime. Sending his heavily armed armies of the night into the streets of Portland, dressed in camouflage with no identifying insignias or names, to attack people was meant as a warning to the rest of the country. Those unidentified military units rolled up on protesters in unmarked vehicles and snatched them off the streets, taking them to various detention facilities, subjecting them to questioning before releasing them. Trump and his spokespeople claimed that their troops were in Portland to protect federal property and restore order. The reality was that the demonstrations had been declining, but in the face of this invasion, many people who hadn't been active felt they had to oppose this occupation of their city and join the demonstrations. Far from being professional protesters, as Trump and his underlings claimed, the demonstrations were made up of a broad cross-section of Portland and the surrounding area. The only professional protesters in the demonstrations were undercover government agents. Vicious attacks against those who were demonstrating were captured on cell phone cameras and sent throughout social media. When two older military veterans were brutally assaulted, one pepper sprayed at close range and another thrown to the ground, shattering his hand, it was a guarantee that many could no longer sit back. Democratic politicians, the governor and the mayor, who was also tear-gassed, 
called for the withdrawal of the forces that had invaded the city. They were supposed to be responsible for governing. Democratic mayors and governors and city councils across the country, whose cities were on the federal hit list, spoke out against the abuse of federal power. The troops are being withdrawn from Portland, and small demonstrations continue. But this is not the end of Trump's election strategy. The attack on the people of Portland was an attempt to distract attention from the out-of-control pandemic and the social and economic crisis that has resulted. It is also a warning of what could lie ahead as the November election nears. Trump still claims he has the right to send in federal troops, and he threatened to mobilize the National Guard in Portland if the demonstrations don't subside. Trump's claim to restore law and order is aimed at his supporters who are losing faith in his ability to solve the many problems they face. The insecurity that has swept the country was brought on by the failure to address the spread of COVID-19. The spread of the virus has led to a social crisis of staggering proportions. Aside from the fear of illness and the growing numbers of people hospitalized and dying, the massive unemployment, food shortages, and collapse of education, and the threat of mass evictions, weighs heavily on individuals and on families. This is the crisis that helped to propel people into the streets in response to the horrific murder of George Floyd. And this is the reality that Trump wants to hide and the unity that he wants to divide. The pandemic has also accelerated the street violence that has become part of life in many U.S. cities and towns. As tensions have increased due to sheltering in place and a disruption of normal life, it has led to clashes in the streets and shootings and killings. Trump's threat to send troops to quell street violence is a bluff at best and an excuse for more police violence at worst. Either way, it plays to the racist fears he works to keep alive among some of his supporters. Trump's comments denouncing the demonstrations and calling activists in Black Lives Matter terrorists provides support to racist and openly fascist groups like the Portland-based Patriot Prayer, the Proud Boys, and others. This also included those who are part of the Boogaloo movement that aims to incite a second civil war, a race war in the U.S., some of them infiltrated the recent demonstrations attempting to incite property damage and violence, including against the police. In a number of cities, local police have arrested and identified people with links to this movement. Two of them were arrested for the killing of a guard at the federal building in Oakland. But in denouncing what Trump calls the violence of the demonstrations and his concern for the safety of the police and federal property, there has been no mention of these groups. All that spews from Trump's tightly pursed lips are attacks on Black Lives Matter protesters. There is no question where he stands. Trump and his policies represent a threat to our lives. His arrogance in using the powers that he has as president has exposed the enormous power that rests in the hands of one person. He has shown he is willing to use that power against protesters who are simply exercising what are supposedly protected democratic rights. The people of Portland were right to stand up to the brutal force and occupation that was unleashed on their city. They were right to stand up for their democratic rights. And as the November election approaches and the crisis brought on by the pandemic continues, 
We have to keep those lessons alive, regardless of who is in office, a Trump or another politician. We cannot depend on them to solve the problems we confront. We have to rely on ourselves to determine the conditions of our lives. Rising evictions show the priorities of this system. With no guarantee of a second stimulus check, no extension of federal unemployment benefits, and eviction moratoriums ending, millions are left vulnerable to eviction during a time when shelter is an even more important necessity. According to the Aspen Institute, up to 23 million renters are at risk of losing their homes, creating a potential avalanche of evictions, hitting low-income workers the hardest. Since the beginning of the pandemic, more than 44 million Americans have filed for unemployment. But with the $600 weekly federal unemployment benefits ending at the end of July, some people are now making as little as $5 per week, Hawaii's minimum weekly benefit. Most states have weekly minimums below $100, with the U.S. average a measly $61. The Senate is proposing a new aid package, the HEALS Act, with weekly federal unemployment benefits of $200, along with a second round of $1,200 direct payments. This was announced on July 27th, yet as of August 4th, a deal has still not been reached. The Senate goes on recess from August 8th to September 8th, so either a resolution will be reached by Friday or not until September, potentially leaving many vulnerable to eviction now. This aid package, if it passes, is still too little and too late. Even if the most aggressive proposals of the bill are agreed upon, millions of poor and working people will still be at risk of getting kicked out on the street. Since May, around 30 state eviction moratoriums have ended. The federal eviction moratorium also expired at the end of July, and without an extension, more than 12 million renters could be defenseless against eviction. With less income, fewer legal protections, and no end in sight to the pandemic, the number of evictions is only going to rise. It's becoming clearer that poor and working people are not a priority of this system, and that the profits of landlords and banks are still more important than human need. Eviction is horrible during normal times. The fact that evictions are only expected to increase in the time of a global health crisis is criminal. We have to prepare ourselves to organize, to oppose evictions, and protect our lives. Iranian activists sentenced to death. On July 26th, the Iranian Supreme Court upheld death sentences against five Iranian activists who were arrested during protests in Iran in December 2017 and July 2018. The announcement came on the heels of a similar ruling of the Supreme Court upholding death sentences for three protesters arrested in November 2019. Tens of thousands of Iranians have taken to the streets in the past couple of years. The sparks for these protests have varied. In 2017, high prices of food and other products set off a wave of activity while in 2019, it was protests against a gas tax. But the underlying causes run much deeper. Iranian workers face a dramatically increasing cost of living, especially in the cost of basic necessities, 
a situation greatly worsened by U.S. sanctions and a government that protects the privileges of elites. The response of the Iranian government to these protesters has been the same, brutal force. Within days of demonstrations in 2019, an estimated 1,500 protesters were murdered by security forces, and thousands more were imprisoned. While the protests were suppressed, the conditions that gave rise to them, poverty and the high cost of living, repression and corruption, still exist. COVID-19 has dramatically worsened all of these problems. Combined with U.S. sanctions, which have prevented needed medical supplies from reaching Iranian hospitals, the results for the Iranian people are catastrophic. We must stand in solidarity with these Iranian activists and their fellow protesters. The struggle against inequality and state repression is ours, too. Polar bears gone by 2100. Recently, scientists predicted that polar bears are likely to disappear by the end of this century if greenhouse gas emissions continue at the levels they're at right now. Climate change is quickly melting the sea ice that polar bears depend on as their hunting ground, forcing them to starve more and more every season. But of course, this won't be the only casualty of climate change if everything stays the same. Polar bears and many other animals and habitats can be saved from the worst effects of climate change, but only if immediate action is taken. If we have any hope to save the polar bears, let alone ourselves and the planet we live on, we're going to have to fight to create a working people's democracy that understands that we are linked to the lands that sustain us all. Public Transit in Crisis Public transit, like the rest of our society, is in an extraordinary crisis. Due to the pandemic and shelter-in-place orders, revenue for transit agencies has dropped off the cliff. Yet, public transportation is vital for any community and must be preserved and expanded if we are to have a decent future. Not only does it provide a livelihood for many, but it is the lifeline of poor and working-class people and with climate change rearing down on us, should be the main form of transit for all. Here is where we see the economy run for the 1% taking us in transit. Most transit agencies in the big cities across our country get their revenue from fares and sales tax. The ratio depends on the agency. In the San Francisco Bay Area, fares generate 10% of the revenue for VTA. Bus service around Palo Alto. Nearly 17% for AC Transit, bus service in Alameda County, and one-third of the revenue for BART, Barrier Rapid Transit. At AC Transit, about 40% of the budget relies on sales tax of some sort. This is usual for large transit agencies. When ridership drops, fare revenues drop. And since people aren't going out spending money as much, tax revenue has dropped also leading to a crisis unseen in our lifetimes, much worse than what happened after 9-11 or the Great Recession. Transit agencies across the country are projected to lose $40 billion in budget shortfalls, compared to the $2 billion loss following 2008. BART and many other major transit agencies from across the country recently co-signed a letter calling on the federal government to allocate between $32 billion dollars and $36 billion in relief funding for public transit in the next so-called 
relief package. The letter pointed out that together the transit agencies move 22 million people a day in areas that generate, quote, 46% of the metropolitan gross domestic product, unquote. The top management from the various transit agencies detailed how ridership has plummeted upwards of 90% during the pandemic, causing fairgate revenue losses in the hundreds of millions. The chairman of New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority, our country's largest transit system, said their fiscal situation was a four-alarm fire. Yes, a crisis, no doubt. At AC Transit, after shelter-in-place was imposed, AC lost 72% of its ridership, from 189,000 to 53,000 weekday passengers. Social distancing has prevented operators from collecting fares, which amounts to about $5 million a month. And the dwindling sales tax revenue has led to a loss of $80 million. Management is now considering drastic service cuts somewhere between 15 to 30% beginning next summer, they say. But we cannot pretend time is in our favor. Service cuts of 15% would save $42 million, and service cuts of 30% would save $85 million. Management says their goal is to reduce service and maintain staffing levels by reducing costs on fuel and overtime, by not filling vacant positions, and by relying on people retiring. At BART, ridership has plummeted roughly 90%. BART officials said in March that the ridership decline will amount to a loss of 40 to $60 million in Fairgate revenue each month. Over the next three years, this could mean a loss in revenue of roughly $1 billion. The BART Board of Directors has already voted to approve the agency's $2.42 billion budget for fiscal year 2021, which includes nearly $200 million in cuts from the $1.016 billion preliminary operating budget. Management is saying that their budget is also $39 million short of what they expected, even given the funding that came from the CARES Act. As a result, they plan to quote, tighten the belt of the workers, of course. Much of the funding cuts come from a one-year hiring freeze that will cut about $36 million. 672 vacant positions have been removed from the fiscal year 2021 budget, and retiring workers will not be replaced. All OT will be limited. Since the region's pandemic-related shelter-in-place order began in mid-March, according to BART, among the folks riding BART trains, 59% do not have access to a car, 81% are people of color, and 35% have a household income of less than $50,000. Working and poor people, especially people of color, will be bearing the burden of these cuts, the people who can least afford it. We say no. At Muni, Muni Metro, San Francisco's light rail system, is set to lose more than half a billion dollars in revenue over the next four years in what the director describes as a transit death spiral. The SF 
MTA Board of Directors approved a revised budget for fiscal years 2020 to 2021 and 2021 to 2022 that includes $200 million in cuts. This will translate into 40 of San Francisco's 68 bus lines being cut, possibly permanently, after being put on hiatus at the beginning of the shelter-in-place orders. And at the very least, those 40 bus lines will remain suspended for the next two years. The director of transportation said that Muni will not survive even if six feet of separation is enforced. And for mass transit to survive, U.S. cities should follow models in Europe and Asia, where agencies have strict cleaning regimens and all riders wear masks. No duh. A solution. Show our collective power. Those budget cuts are drastic, and they are likely to be just the tip of the iceberg of what is to come. We cannot believe the lie of no money. Of course, there is a pandemic and a decline in revenue. But while public transit agencies beg for money, the federal government hands over billions of dollars to those who already have it. Public transportation is crucial for our society and the health of our communities. Rather than cutting this service, it should be expanded. Not only does it provide a livelihood for many, but it is the lifeline of poor working class people. And with climate change rearing down on us, should be the main form of transit for us all. We must pay attention to what's going on and build connections with our fellow transit workers and our riders. Only if we come together will we have the power to defend our interests. Remembering the legacy of John Lewis, civil rights activist. John Lewis was a civil rights leader and activist that fought to end racial segregation in the United States. His achievements as a grassroots organizer that inspired many should be celebrated and honored. We should also remember that it was his activism during the civil rights movement rather than his time in the U.S. government that helped create change for black Americans. While he passed away on July 17th, his legacy of bravery and determination in the face of violent injustice lives on. As a young boy in segregated Alabama public schools, Lewis was inspired by the activism around the Montgomery bus boycotts and found resonance in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As a student at Fisk University, Lewis staged sit-in demonstrations at segregated lunch counters, resulting in multiple arrests and jail time. Soon after, he volunteered to be one of the first freedom riders, activists that rode on the interstate buses in the South in mixed racial groups to protest the laws that enforced segregated seating. These nonviolent activists were often beaten, by angry mobs arrested or jailed. During the height of the civil rights movement, he became a chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Co-founded by Lewis, SNCC was a civil rights group that organized freedom rights and sit-ins, working to empower black communities. As chairman, he planned a speech for the March on Washington, denouncing the 1963 Civil Rights Bill for not protecting African Americans against police brutality or allowing black people to vote, citing the bill as too little and too late. Other organizers of the march asked Lewis to tone down the speech as an effort to rein in the increasing radicalization of SNCC. His new speech instead offered reserved support for the bill, leaving out calls for revolution in favor of appeals for respect from the political leadership of the country. 
beginning with, quote, We march today for jobs and freedom, but we have nothing to be proud of. For hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, for they are receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. The speech was still ferocious and iconic. Because the Civil Rights Bill failed to grant equal voting access, Lewis also helped organize a march for voting rights in Selma, where he and other marchers were met with brutality from heavily armed state and local police. He sustained a skull fracture from police and later admitted this was how he thought he would die. Lewis survived this bloody Sunday, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed into law soon after. The civil rights leader left SNCC in 1966 as the organization was adopting more radical stances and moving away from nonviolence. This came as a result of the Democratic Party in Mississippi refusing to oust their own candidates to allow the seating of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic delegates. The Democratic Party was refusing the entry of black folks into electoral politics, and the SNCC activists were beginning to see that even though they played by the rules, they still weren't political equals. This helped give rise to the idea that the period for nonviolent protests was over. Lewis continued to adhere to his nonviolent stance and instead focused his efforts on increasing black engagement in electoral politics. He eventually went into these politics himself, winning a seat on the Atlanta City Council in 1981 and getting elected to the House of Representatives in 1986. While in office, he called for health care reform, as well as measures to fight poverty and create improvements in education. However, without the backing of a movement, such as existed when he was engaged in the civil rights movement, these reforms have found little traction in Congress, and the lack of progress has little to do with Lewis's efficacy, morality, or determination in Congress. It's rather that social progress happens not in a voting booth or through willpower of U.S. legislators, but through movements and collective determination in the streets. This is the way we can make meaningful change. And in remembering John Lewis, we can be reminded of the role activism plays in social progress. Politicians don't improve the lives of working people. Everyday people organized and exercising their collective power make change. Lewis contributed more to social progress in less than 10 years as an organizer than in his nearly 30 years in Congress. And changing the society we live in today is going to take the same determination and courage as exhibited by civil rights activists, directing that energy at the system that continues to exploit black and working people. Biden's climate plan won't save us. Presidential candidate Joe Biden recently announced his policy proposals for addressing climate change, which he accurately admits is an existential threat. His campaign website outlines his plan for a clean energy revolution to address the climate emergency we are facing. So what does this supposedly revolutionary plan entail? For starters, the Biden plan ensures the U.S. will achieve 100% clean energy with net zero emissions by 2050, which is 30 years from now, 20 years after the International Government Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, says there will already be catastrophic climate shifts. The U.S. is currently seeing an increased frequency of heat waves, 
a higher incidence of forest fires, an increase in tropical storms, and accelerating coastal flooding. And these global warming-related events are only projected to get worse, according to a U.S. government report. We can't take 30 years to address existential threats. We have to address them now. Biden's plan also promises a number of other gestures that will be inadequate to deal with the climate emergency we are facing. He promises a $400 billion investment in clean energy research and innovation for over four years, which seems paltry when you consider oil and gas industries brought in $181 billion in 2018 alone. He plans to add an additional 500,000 new public electric vehicle charging stations by 2030, an insufficient plan for addressing transportation emissions when electric vehicles comprise only 2% of all vehicle purchases. Biden also promises to invest in biofuels and nuclear energy, energy sources that respectively contribute to global warming or pose serious public health risks. And these are only a few of his more specific proposals, with most of his plan comprised of generic promises for achieving a greener America. And all of this, he assures, will be done while increasing economic growth. America will not fall behind, quote, in the clean energy race for the future, unquote. And Biden's plan guarantees economic benefits for multiple industries. But the capitalist system we live under demands ever greater profits. The fossil fuel industry is not going to give up on its investments, nor is expensive infrastructure going to be instantly rebuilt to support novel renewable energy sources. Green energy investments may increase, but never at the scale that will be necessary to secure a future for generations to come. You can't benefit capital investment and the planet at the same time. That Biden has a climate policy at all does speak to the fact that people are rightly concerned about their future in an age of impending global climate catastrophe. But we can't put our trust in Biden or any politician to tackle climate change on the scale we need. They simply can't. The capitalist system we live under won't allow them. We need to fight the system in order to save our environment. Speak Out Now is a revolutionary socialist organization. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. We want to thank Boots Riley and The Coup for letting us use their song Get Up featuring Dead Prez. Thanks for listening.